what's going on everybody welcome back to another episode the core consult rx podcast cole what's going on man doing good i think we need to record this quickly before that storm comes and just totally ruins the audio huh that's true yeah, yeah so if you start hearing a lot of staticky sound it's not the audio equipment it's the outside noise. torrential downpour that's yeah. about to come i think it's uh i think it's the tropical storm fred i believe coming up our way goody yeah. Old Fred. <laughs> Old Fred. So uh, how's life as a, as a dad going for you? It's good. Challenging, but fun. Is you, it uh, like kind of the realness of it set in yet that you are now um, responsible for this this person? Yeah, you know, I went to the pharmacy to pick up my first prescription today because he's got some acid reflux and stuff. And it was, uh, you know, it's the Pepsi suspension, promoted suspension. And they handed it to me and I was like, does it need to be mixed? And they're like, I don't think so. And I looked at it, I was like, I think it needs to be mixed. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, it does. Let me mix it for you. It's like, oh. thank you. Oh, off to a good start. Off to a good start. Here we go. We have the great pharmacist. This and the, pharmacist Anna just called awesome. me as I was walking in, and she's like, I'm glad there's extra in that bottle because I just spilt it everywhere. I was like, okay, good. We're off to a good start. <laughs> I guess the good news is, worst case, you could always just throw in that refill. Right, yes. <laughs> so that, Another that's, refill. that's pretty helpful. Yeah. So uh, today, before we get started, um, I do want to give a quick shout out to Pearls, which is our sponsor for uh, this episode. Um, He has sponsored us before, but if you have not checked out um, the Pearls app, uh, which is P-Y-R-L-S, it is a fantastic drug information uh, app, and it's something that I truly think is going to be um, a big a big deal here in the near future because it's getting more and more content each time, uh, each month. And um, the, the app itself has a lot of great charts and kind of reference guides and things like that. So it is there's a free version you can download, and then there's also like a premium version you can subscribe to. But if you go to www.pearls.com slash core consult rx, uh, you can put in uh, your email address um, to kind of subscribe, at least the newsletter, which you can unsubscribe at any time. Uh, but that'll at least give you free access to um, some diabetes charts. I think there's 10 in uh, total. And um, we have some new charts coming your way very soon. Um, so they're going to be some pretty fantastic um, asthma type thing. That's all I'll say about that. But some really, really good charts. I got a sneak peek of them. They're, they're fantastic. That's what we call in the business a tease. Yeah, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> so um, thank you. Big shout out to uh, Pearls for sponsoring and supporting the podcast. Um, so make sure you guys check that out. Um, support those who support us. We'll appreciate it very much. Um, and without further ado, Cole, what are we talking about today? Talking about something that we probably should have talked about before I had a baby, mm-hmm. but it's uh, medication use in pregnancy. So safe medications to use and medications that you shouldn't use, which a couple of these I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like not that I was like using anything dangerous, but maybe I wasn't using the the first line safe option, but it's okay. Yeah. Baby's good. Hey, everybody's good now. Everything's good. I thought I was, but it all worked out. Yeah. We're going to give you the information so you don't make similar mistakes. You don't make the same mistakes as Cole. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it also, you know, when we go through these, we're going to kind of touch on various sort of, you know, kind of conditions that come along with being pregnant, you know, as far as things like constipation and whatnot and treatments, um, you know, in that regard, but we're also going to talk briefly through managing some common disease states, um, in a patient who's pregnant. Um, and so it's something that, uh, you know, these are, this is like a very basic kind of overview. Obviously, you know, there's going to be OBs, you know, they're specialized, um, and, uh, they're going to have their very particular regiments and things that they approve of and that aren't necessarily, 
you know, in guidelines and whatnot. So take, this is kind of a, that it's a beginner overview. Um, we're not claiming that this is the end all be all or anything like that, but hopefully it's at least helpful to get you started. And we'll try to not make it confusing. I will say that, um, you know, they got rid of the, which we're going to talk about, they got rid of the old pregnancy designations and they've got the new stuff because apparently the old ones were confusing because they were overly simplistic, but I kind of liked them being simple, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, you can look and see the recommendations and stuff, but it's just a little, little nice and easy to see the, the letters and like, okay, this is probably good, you know? And it's one of those things that, you know, what they I, need now, they just need to color code it, you know, like, is that what you need? Like green, yellow, and red, maybe orange for X or something. Mm. You know, just okay. color, color orange code. is worse than X. Uh, you mean worse than red? Yeah. yeah maybe, I, maybe red, <laughs> maybe red should be the worst. Okay. Orange. Yeah. Maybe orange will be D red will be X. Yeah. There you go. Got it. I think that's the old Lexi Compa colors. I feel yeah. like you stole that from them. Oh, did I? Yeah. Maybe mm. it's okay. Oh, for the interactions. Yeah. 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 I would just make it consistent. Yeah. 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 Slash do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, as far as these go, you know, obviously these, this is kind of an outdated system, like Cole said, but I think it's it's kind of ingrained in a lot of the vernacular that uh, clinicians use in general. So we'll kind of just touch on it just so, especially our younger listeners who um, I always like to put myself in that uh, age range. And I remember that I'm farther removed uh, from school than I like to That's how you age yourself. You're like, how did you learn pregnancy categories? And that that shows how old you are. So yeah, that's that's the only way to do it. Um, But uh, you know, as far as like Cole said, the reason they kind of had some issues with is, you know, the over simplicity of them is, is pretty apparent, you know, and we say all meds in this category are are considered C or or B or whatever, you know, the studies and the case reports and the, you know, retrospective cohorts can be really different depending on the drugs. And there may be a lot of uh, data with one and not the other. Um, And also a lot of it's based on, you know, have we shown safety in animal studies um, that we can then extrapolate that to human studies. Uh, And that's not always the case. I mean, a lot of times it works out that way, but like in the case of like um, the Uh, You know, that was found to be safe in animal studies, uh, but then obviously is a uh, very teratogenic um, agent than when you give it to to humans. So um, not a a good um, kind of model to go by when it comes with uh, those old school rating systems. But um, the the new labeling is basically there to just give a lot of um, a lot more in-depth information and also like references and kind of give you an idea of where you know, we could go with, with all this so that, um, you know, the, the, you can kind of provide one, the patient with the best clinical decision, as well as giving them further information if they have questions and you're not just kind of just blanket statement, everything in this category to see. Right. Yada, and yada, there's yada. a lot more nuance and I mean, the safety exists on a spectrum because it's not the, like Mike said, the data is not clear cut either way for most of them. So it exists on a spectrum. Yeah. So just to kind of touch on the old pregnancy categories, which any drug from 2015 and further has, it was kind of started with the, um, the, the newer, like more in-depth discussions about pregnancy and lactation. Uh, and then now at this point, I think as of 2018, every drug had to be kind of updated with these new rating systems. But just to kind of give you some background information, if you're not familiar with it, the old pregnancy category. So for example, A was basically showed that controlled studies in animals as well as uh, female patients showed no risk um, to uh, you know the fetus in the first trimester. And so it's considered to be very safe. Um, B was animal studies have not showed any kind of fetal risk, but the controlled studies in pregnant women have not really been done. So we can't definitively say for sure, but it's 
likely that it's safe. C basically just shows that the animal studies have showed some harm um, and there are not controlled studies to kind of verify harm um, in, in the human patients, but uh, the benefit often can outweigh the risk in certain situations. And so we still can potentially use them. D basically just gets a little bit more um, harm that it, you know, the, the harm level can go up a little bit and the, the life threatening, um, or serious disease states may in that case have a, a more weight in the benefit category versus risk, but it's not something we would just take lightly. It would be something that would be really, um, do we have to prove that it's helping the, the life of the in, in safety of the mother, um, to justify using it. And then obviously category X is like contraindicated, definitely shows fetal abnormalities. We don't want to use it. Yeah, and truthfully, with the C, I would generally see, um, you know, a, a category C and be like, oh yeah, it's fine. Yeah. But I mean, it's it. They've shown that there was harm in animal studies, and there's no studies in humans, and we're just like, oh yeah, C is fine. Hmm. So the nuance is good. Um. So they have the new pregnancy section. They have a lactation section. They have a section on female and males of reproductive potential. So, like Mike said, with the pregnancy section, there's kind of a summary. Um that's required for all medications for that could be a teratogenic risk. Um, it includes pregnancy exposure registry information, and then they encourage people to try to have the patients participate in the registry so they can get as much data as possible. In the lactation section, they discuss um, more of the drug metabolite um, situation, the ability to enter into the breast milk, um, and then they have a section on females and males of reproductive potential. So that's any effects on fertility and requirements for pregnancy testing and contraception with the use of those meds. They give pretty detailed you know, descriptions. So if you look at like Lexicomp, you know, that has all the package insert information, you pull up a drug, it's going to give you probably more information than you even want. Um, plus it can kind of give you like specifics of the studies. Um, whereas, you know, like the example I gave to my PA students was, you know, if, uh, in fluoroquinolone antibiotic, you know, is it just ciprofloxacin that has been shown to have issues or is it fluoroquinolones as a whole um, and it kind of breaks it down in that way um, it, you know it's similar to like with macrolides can cause QT prolongation well some more than others and you know some more drug interactions than others is you can't just blanket statement um, you know macrolides are this right. same kind of thing with pregnancy and so it can or maybe they are blanket statements so um, you just got to kind of it'll give you the the insight to kind of make that decision and I'll definitely say that looking at the LactMed app for drugs, for better or worse, makes me more more hesitant than if I had just seen a Category C and moved on. Just reading their description of the available data, I'm like, huh, maybe that's not the best idea. Let me look for a safer alternative, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, obviously the the whole concern is, is the drug's effects on the fetus. And, you know, with basically having to take into account the, the what the data says, but also kind of thinking through, um, you know, some of the characteristics of the, the medication, and, you know, chemical itself um, in, in how it is able to kind of um, cross the, the placenta and get into the, um, you, you know, the fetus's kind of circula circulation to kind of expose them to the drug. Um, some medications are going to have properties that kind of, you know, limit the, the transfer across that placenta, and then some are going to just make it 
pretty easily to transfer across. So to give you an example, like um, certain medications that have a lower molecular weight. So if we think of like 500 Daltons or less, um, the those are going to probably you know, more readily cross the placenta. Um, once you get into that 500 to 1,000, it takes, it's a little bit longer or a little bit slower crossing. And then when you get above 1,000 Daltons, um, they don't really cross the placenta to a significant amount. So for example, like uh, anoxaparin, you know, low molecular heparin or unfractionated heparin, um, low molecular heparin is going to have a molecular weight of you know, around 1,200 Daltons. Um, and then the heparin is going to be even higher than that. I think it's like in the three or 4,000 Dalton range. And so th those are going to be a lot harder for them to transfer to the fetus and get, you know, across the placenta. And so those are typically what we see being used for like VTE or prophylaxis or whatnot in, in pregnancy. Um, same insulin has a higher molecular weight. And so they can kind of keep the, that trauma transplacental transfer to a minimum, um, the more lipophilicity of a drug, uh, makes it more readily able to, uh, cross, um, the, plasma albumin um, does progressively sort of um, decrease uh, and the fetal albumin increases. So it decreases in the mother, but the fetal albumin increases during pregnancy. And so uh, drugs that are, you know, highly protein bound are going to have higher concentrations uh, in the fetus potentially. And then the fetal pH even is, is slightly more acidic. So if you have like, you know, weak bases, for example, they're going to cross a little bit more readily as well. So taking into account some of those differences can kind of give you some insight and then looking at the true studies from there to see what the safety data looks like. You know, lipophilicity wouldn't be a bad band name. It's true. Kind of imagine for maybe more overweight guys up there <laughs> called lipophilicity. That's a good idea. You're pretty good, huh? We should sell that. Yeah. Let's get the uh, .com. And then <laughs> we'll sell the idea. Lipophilicity.com. There you go. Uh, I bet it's out there. It's, it's got to be. It's got to be. If not, it's a huge mistake. Huge mistake. Um, so I don't think we really uh, uh, told you what a pterogen is or something that's teratogenic. So uh, a pterogen is an agent that can halt a pregnancy or cause fetal malformations. So it can cause harm. Um, these drugs should be discontinued in pregnancy or ideally prior to pregnancy if possible. So you want to evaluate that, especially if you have somebody of childbearing age who is considering becoming pregnant. Um, though medication exposure is only estimated to account for less than 1% of all birth defects, um, any is too many, but um, it's not like this happens all the time and usually because of um, good follow-up from an um, obstetrics and gynecology standpoint and from a pharmaceutical standpoint. Um, the use of some drugs known to cause harm may be considered if the benefits outweigh the risk. Um, so for example, uh, if with seizures, seizures are very dangerous to the mother and the baby. Um, so you might consider an antiepileptic that might not be the safest as far as, uh, from a triatogenic standpoint. Um, but to prevent seizures, it might be worth it. Um, or you would look to try to switch to an alternative if you didn't feel like the, the risk or the benefit outweighed the risk in that situation. So very, very clinical and kind of a discussion you'd want to have with the patient and, and be pretty upfront about what the risks are. Yeah, I think that's the key is making sure the patient is in the know and that you're not just making it based on your own clinical decision-making, making sure the patient obviously is well aware of risk and benefits. Right. But um, just to kind of touch on some sort of key teratogens that we need to be aware of. Um, so, for example, things to treat acne, specifically um, Accutane being the brand name, isotretinoin, um, the oral uh, retinoid that's available. Very effective for severe like nodular acne. However, um, very teratogenic and, um, you know, old school category X 
very, very strict REMS program associated with it. There's no nuance to that. It's either X or it's not. Yeah, right. I like that one. We'll keep the X. We'll keep I X. still use X all the time. <laughs> so, um, And then uh, the topical retinoid um, Tazerac is also considered uh, contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, you know, the, It has more systemic absorption than um, like the tretinoin um, or the adapalene, but... Um, that one, the, the Tazerac is truly contraindicated, although I would probably say we be the safest option would be to avoid any of the, the topical retinoids in general during pregnancy, but I know uh, Tazerac comes up a lot with being truly contraindicated in the label. Uh, Antibiotic-wise, we're thinking like fluoroquinolones, tetracyclines we probably want to avoid. Um, metronidazole, uh, we definitely want to try to avoid, in, at least in the first trimester, um, but then maybe pick a different agent if we can get away with it. Um, you know, if we do need it, make sure it's hopefully in the second or third trimester. And there's um, some cardiovascular-related drugs that hopefully you're pretty familiar with as being Category X or contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, statins, ACEs and ARBs, or Alaskirin, which I did have a couple patients on Alaskirin, interestingly. Um, Entresto as well, because it has an ARB in there. Um, and Atenolol, that's Category X for everything, not just pregnancy. Um, also hormones. I like that category X for in general. <laughs> yeah. You use a 10 a lot. I thought you would. It took stop you about four or five beats like, to, like, to catch on. Stop listening to our podcast <laughs> if you like a 10 a lot. Um, but also hormones. So for obvious reasons, estradiol and progesterone, uh, you would want to avoid those in pregnancy as well. Some other kind of just important ones that you could run into, um, you know, some of the uh, mood stabilizers, so things like lithium, um, as well as some of the anti-epileptics that are used as mood stabilizers, like uh, Divalprox, um, Lamotrigine, uh, Topiramate, uh, those are all also going to be considered teratogens, and we want to avoid those. Um, things like uh, methotrexate, you know, for rheumatoid conditions, we want to avoid um, paroxetine is um, one we try to avoid uh, as far as our SSRIs in during pregnancy. Um, paroxetine in particular seems to be um, more harm potential than others. And then uh, hydroxyurea is another one that uh, we kind of want to be aware of. Um, probably not going to be one you're going to see as much as the others, but keep an eye out for that one as well. Um, that one could throw you off because you're thinking hydroxyurea, fetal hemoglobin. That's fine because they already have fetal hemoglobin, but we don't want to make those levels go too high because then I'm sure we could have some problems, at right. least in theory. So, yeah, those are obviously not an ex exhaustive list because um, we just, just got too tired writing them all out. But um, <laughs> Just uh, some common ones. Just some common ones you will see. Always double-check. I don't think I've ever not double-checked a pregnancy or lactation question, even if I feel like I'm pretty confident. Like, can I take Benadryl in pregnancy? I'm just going to double-check. Yeah. Um, you know, we should make a, instead of a pregnancy category X list, we should make a core console category X list. That's a good idea. Tenolol, hydrochlorothiazide. Yep. Svani reads to toss them on there, you know? Yep. Starlix. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we got a bunch you're going to put on there. Yeah. Core yeah. console That's category a great idea. X. I like it. Yep. Done. So, um, that is kind of the end of us telling you what you can't do in pregnancy. So now we'll tell you what you should do and also some other things that you can't do, but in general, how to treat some common conditions that pop up during pregnancy and what are some safe over-the-counter and prescription meds to use. So constipation, common issue during pregnancy. Um, first line, just like any other time, we're going with lifestyle management. Try to increase your fiber intake, make sure you're drinking enough water and you're adequately hydrated. Um, and some moderate physical activity is fine as well and, and probably beneficial even in pregnancy. If you need to use something, you can use Miralax. That's safe. It's an osmotic laxative. Um, it's going to, um, you know, usually work pretty well for most people. Um, with a quick onset, about 30 minutes, uh, could take a couple days, but um, in general, it's a pretty quick onset. So Miralax is one. 
Um, also, you have the bulk forming agents that are safe. You've got the Metamucil, which is psyllium. You got Fibercon, Citrusel. Those over the counter options. Uh, bulk forming agents are fine. Um, they're going to create a gel like matrix with the stool, soak up fluid, add some bulk, and just kind of help get it out. Situations where you wouldn't want to use that is if there's some kind of significant issue going on, like a fetal, fecal impaction uh, or an obstruction. You wouldn't want to use those. Um, and just make sure to separate those from medications by a couple of hours. Um, make sure you're adequately hydrated. But, of course, they can cause some GI upset with gas and bloating and that sort of thing. But uh, they are safe to take in pregnancy. And I think also, too, it's important to kind of be upfront with expectations as far as how quickly these are going to work. Um, these are, the Miralax especially, it's much more gentle in the system than like a stimulant laxative. Um, and But you're thinking it could take up to like 96 hours to truly start working. And so it's something that, uh, you know, you just want to make sure you're, telling patients that up front so that they're not, you know, disappointed 12 hours in that it's not fixing their constipation. Um, the bulk forming agents can, you know, work the first day, but um, it can take, you know, three days or so to work. So just kind of giving them a, an idea. Um, other potential um, agents you could use. So one of the, the stimulant laxatives, so like Senna or Abyssicoidal, um, those are, if we are going to use those, they're going to be reserved for more like short-term use. We try not to use, and really that's the same for every patient. We don't, we try not to do anything that's like constantly stimulating, um, you know, that peristaltic, you know, motion and whatnot constantly um, to, to, you know, put the GI system under stress. And so we would want to reserve these for a short, short, short-term use. Um, we also want to try to avoid some of the like electrolyte based um, agents, so like mag citrate, um, any type of like sodium salt, um, and you know those can cause those electrolyte Im imbalances, and that's going to be something that we definitely do not want to cause an issue with. Um, well, you know, patients pregnant, things like castor oil um, that can actually cause a, a stimulation of the uterine, um, or it can cause stimulation of uterine contractions. So again, not <laughs> something we we're trying to do. Not um, ideal. Not ideal. And. We're not going to recommend you trying that to induce labor either. Yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> Save that for someone who knows how to do that. <laughs> um, and then uh, mineral oil is another one that should be avoided uh, because that can actually impair the, um, the absorption of, of fat-soluble vitamins. So it may not truly be a clinically relevant risk, but why take the risk in a pregnant patient? They need their vitamins. Yep, for sure. So there's also GERD, which is a common issue in pregnancy. And um, you know the saying goes that if you had bad, if you have bad acid reflux, and your kid's gonna have a nice full head of hair when they're born. Definitely I've wouldn't say that. It, it, it's a thing. It's yeah. a thing. Okay. I heard it way too many times because Anna had some acid reflux, and they're oh. like, "Oh, your kid's gonna have a lot of hair." I'm like, "Okay, cool." He did. So yeah, that's good. That's good. He, you know, most people have hair. Yeah. Now, now he's balding significantly because they lose that what? they lose that baby hair have you started him on propecia <laughs> yeah thought thought about the the hormones uh, <laughs> yeah let's get that head of hair back what are we doing i'm just happy that he's the first swanson to go bald and it wasn't me right so that's a good that's a good call yeah it'll happen eventually yeah um but yeah so i would definitely say that um toughing through your your acid reflux to hopefully prompt some hair growth is not worth it so it's okay to treat um, lifestyle management, of course, first line, avoid the foods that are aggravating you, alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, citruses, uh, citrus juices, that sort of thing. Reduce fat intake. Um, try to avoid eating close to bedtime, about two to three hours before bedtime. We've heard these things before. Stay upright after eating. Um, weight loss if overweight, but you do want to be cautious with weight loss in pregnancy because um, in general you are supposed to have a, a very healthy amount of weight gain. So talk to your OB um, before considering any weight loss in that situation. Um, 
reduce or stop any nicotine use. So hopefully you're not smoking during pregnancy, um, but any other sort of nicotine you wouldn't want to be using anyway. Um, elevate the head of the bed, avoid tight-fitting clothing. Um, but of course, a lot of people wear the, the tight-fitting hose around their legs to prevent um, vein issues and whatnot. But uh, as long as it's not around the, the belly as much, then that might uh, help a little bit with, with the acid reflux. So medication-wise, if we do need to go that route, um, we have our uh, antacids, um, kind of first line. So and a lot of times with a patient with, with kind of chronic um, reflux, we're going to most likely jump more to H2 blocker PPI in, in some cases as well, kind of first line. Um, with pregnancy, we want to start off you know, maybe a little bit more gradual and do the antacids first to see if that can take care of it. Um, so, you know, the calcium carbonate or Tums is really going to be the kind of ideal uh, agent to use there. Um, there are some others like sodium bicarb or um, magnesium tri-silicate uh, or um, alumina or, you know, things like that that we probably want to avoid, um, again, for electrolyte imbalances and whatnot. But calcium carbonate is pretty safe, um, and it's going to have a very quick onset of action. However, it's also got a short duration. So you're going to have to take multiple doses depending on how bad the reflux is. And if that's not enough to kind of control symptoms, then uh, we do have our H2 blockers. So, you know, cimetidine and famotidine um, both have some data in pregnancy. Um, brand name Zantac. Remember, ranitidine itself has been off the market, but uh, brand name Zantac, you may see o OTC. And um, that's something that uh, now just has the ingredient famotidine. How silly so is that? It's real stupid. It's just so silly. That's like... Like, why bother? <laughs> that's like um, that's like a leave just making ibuprofen and then just marketing it as a, a leave. new thing. How dumb would that be? It well, makes no sense. I can't believe they're allowed to do that. The problem is, is people are going to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're going to buy see... it because it's Zantac. Right. It's just hard to believe. Yeah. So well. stupid. Hey, at least they did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. At least, at least they got rid hey, of the ranitidine. More, more morals over the dollar. Yeah, that's now their, what they're doing, they're they have Zantac. They say it's famotidine, but really they're just tossing the extra ranitidine in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know I see I mean? what you guys are up to. Yeah. Um, but H2 blockers can be used as needed instead of scheduled if possible. Um, but, uh, you know, if this is bad enough, we may need to schedule them. And then if we have to, we can go to the proton pump inhibitors. Uh, again, trying to limit how long um, the patient's staying on them. Um, there is not a ton of data surrounding, um, you know, the PPIs. And as far as like, you know, risks or anything towards, you know, birth defects or anything like that, it doesn't look like there's any sort of risk. Um, a lot of the data is centered around omiprazole. And so if you want to be as evidence-based as possible, omiprazole is probably your best bet. Um, but, uh, yeah, kind of antacids, H2 blockers, and then PPIs if necessary. Yeah. Similar kind of thing you would do in a regular patient too, really. I'm a lot quicker to jump PPI if I have to, at least These for short term. Oh, yeah. for short term. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of get it under control. Right. Like, yeah. Let's heal that up and then go from there. As long as you take them off of it, right? Yeah. Um, so nausea and vomiting, very common issue throughout pregnancy and especially in the first trimester. People had told us horror stories. I was all worried about this first trimester. She barely had like any issues with that. But uh, I guess it just depends on the person, right? Yeah. Um, so um, the common thing that you will see, the bottle has a nice little pregnant lady, a picture of a pregnant lady on it is diclegis, which is uh, pyridoxine plus doxylamine. So that's vitamin B6 plus one of the sonata, or not the sonatas, but the Unisom. uh, unisoms. Um, so the diclegis is extremely expensive. And so getting the two separate ones over the counter um generally works just as well it's a little bit different because i think that just has like extended release versions or something like that mm -hmm. but in general to save money if your insurance doesn't cover it getting them separately over the counter 
is a good thing to try. Um, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, considers the pyridoxine alone or in combination with doxylamine a first-line option. So I just think that's super interesting. Because in general, you wouldn't like see that used for regular nausea and vomiting, right? It's just in pregnancy. Yeah. Um, Reglan is another option, but definitely second line because it has some undesirable side effects that can happen. You can have extrapyramidal type symptoms like you would with an antipsychotic, um, tardive dyskinesia type situation. So um, definitely second line. And Zofran, um, there's some a large case control study that found an increase of oral uh, clefts with patients who had Zofran um, when they were pregnant. Um, there's more recent studies that don't show an increased risk of congenital anomalies. So, um, yeah, maybe just not your first one. Yeah. Um, and then oh, the other thing I was going to mention, too, with um, diclegis is, you know, sometimes because the, the tablets themselves are like what, uh, 10 milligrams, 10 milligrams yeah, like 10, um, 10. of each. And so you basically titrate up to where you're doing um you know, like two tablets at once would be 20 and 20. Uh, it's going to be really hard to find those specific doses, um, like just in like any like walk-in pharmacy. However, um, they do have the more similar doses like online, Amazon and things like that. So uh, if you really want to be specific as far as the dosing and making sure you're getting as close to the original dose as possible, um, you can find them online. But I, I, I think doubt the, you're going to find them in the pharmacy. The Unisom is usually like 50 yeah. or something like that, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, Pregnancy uh, or diabetes in uh, pregnancy. I did this in my when I talked through this uh, stuff with my PA. I also started this slide off with pregnancy instead of diabetes in pregnancy. Did the same <laughs> thing twice like an idiot. So stupid. Um, so diabetes in pregnancy. Um, third time's a charm. You're gonna say pregnancy and pregnancy diabetes. Pregnancy and diabetes. What are they all about? I mean, it's kind of the same thing, but slightly different. Right? Yeah. If you're, it yeah. just depends on what you think is more important, I guess. Sure. At least I think, like how you give me a cop out. I yeah, like that. Pregnancy. I'm just going to chalk it up to be me and stupid sometimes. <laughs> um, so diabetes and pregnancy, um, you know, gestational diabetes is something that as far as, you know, detecting it, we definitely should be screening patients um, pretty early on uh, because keeping a tight glucose control is going to be really important um, for, you know, ensuring the, the baby's healthy and all that. So um, doing uh, kind of a glucose, uh, oral glucose tolerance test is sort of the um, you know, the main way of screening for gestational diabetes, um, an A1C check, you know, where we would use that potentially in like type two diabetes or something like that. Um, it's going to take, you know, a good three months to see the, the elevated blood sugar starting to reflect in the A1C accurately. Um, so you may see a little bit of a bump, but you may not get a full ideal picture. Um, if you look at the A1C, so the oral glucose tolerance test is going to be a little bit more, you know, effective to catch it early on before that A1C has had a chance to adjust. Yep. So um, there's, uh, we won't go through the different steps, but basically you give a 75 gram um, dose of glucose and then you're checking the fasting level, checking one hour after, two hour after, and making sure that uh, at the two hours, but they basically want it um, to be 152 or less. Uh, milligrams per deciliter so and there is another way um, which I, is the one i'm more familiar with which is where you get 50 grams and then if it's elevated then you would come back later on and do 100 grams and then see if it's still elevated and that would diagnose it um, so the two-step i've seen a lot and i'm looking at these amounts of grams of sugar and i'm like man i do a glucose tolerance test every day <laughs> this is a daily situation for cole that's terrible for you <laughs> 
get to drink sugar-free monsters like I do. I know. I've got Coke Zero right it's here. so healthy. You know, they say not to drink. Um, like when you look up podcasting tips, like how to be a good podcaster, mm-hmm. did this a long time ago, like three years ago. <laughs> they say don't drink carbonated beverages. Why? Before a drink. burp? Yeah, you know, burp or like, I don't know. I don't know. I drink one. Every, Every time. single time I record something. <laughs> and that's whether it's a, something for Patreon, this yeah. never fails. Probably have burps like crazy on So pa- I think Patreon. we're just proving the, the pundits wrong. That's what yeah. we do, right? That's our that's been our ticket is just never look up what you're supposed to do and yeah. just kind of start talking in this microphone yeah. and just see what happens. And it's worked pretty well. Mm. It's worked reasonably Sub- well. Subjective. Yeah, right. <laughs> we think it has. It's been fun. Um, okay, so managing uh, gestational diabetes, obviously, the lifestyle management is going to be super important. Same kind of things apply as far as exercise. Um, you know, maybe if the, depending how far along the patient is, you know, maybe we're not telling them to go uh, jump into a CrossFit workout if they've never uh, done that. Not although I have seen some pretty uh, boss moms doing CrossFit workouts pretty far <laughs> along into their pregnancy, which is pretty awesome. But um, you know, the glucose monitoring and all those types of things, we we do want to um, encourage, but then. And oftentimes we're going to need uh, insulin therapy and it's basically like kind of treating as if they're a type one almost, but pretty tight um, control of glucose using insulin therapy. Uh, there are um, instances where we'll do metformin um, either as an alternative if a female patient just absolutely declines insulin um, or it's like the cost, you know, or inability to use injections, whatever it may be, is the issue, then we can use metformin as an alternative potentially. However, um, one study was saying that, that 40% of women on metformin will still require supplemental insulin to truly control their blood glucose. So it is going to increase the sensitivity and all that like it normally would, but um, insulin therapy really is first line. Uh, there is also a little bit of data with gliburide. Ugh. Gliburide. Um, however, it's definitely been shown to be inferior to insulin um, as far as uh, preventing the um, neonatal morbidity um, after birth. And uh, it's also something that, um, you know, hypoglycemia, which I guess they're on insulin therapy, that can also increase hypoglycemia risk. But gliburide has a really long half life and yada, yada, yada. All the reasons we hate gliburide. Um, but if a patient is pre- uh, is diagnosed with gestational diabetes while pregnant, they do have a much higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. Um, and so doing like p- kind of periodic screenings um, postpartum is going to be in- encouraged because we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. And if it does, we catch it early. Yep. So um, there's also hypertension in pregnancy, which is going to be treated a little bit different because we talked about uh, ACEs are was being contraindicated and that sort of thing. Um, as far as diagnosing it, it's usually um, over 140 systolic and over 90 diastolic with two measurements at least four hours apart. Um, so recommendations, you can definitely exercise. The recommendations in the specific situation would be 50 minutes, three days a week can reduce the incidence of hypertension threefold over women who are more uh, sedentary. And um, there, there is not really evidence that indicates that stress reduction or activity restriction improves pregnancy outcomes. Um, prolonged bed rest may increase complications. So staying somewhat active uh, can be, definitely be a positive thing in pregnancy, although swollen ankles and um, tiredness will make that difficult, I've seen from experience. Um, and there was actually somebody I knew who was on bed rest um, in the last few weeks of their pregnancy because their baby was breached. And when the babies are in the womb, they will like stretch out, like significantly just stretch and push their feet. And since he was breached, his feet were at her pelvis and he stretched out and pushed and broke her pelvis. What? Yeah. And she was on bed rest for like the last three weeks until to term. 
How wild is that? Whew. Thank you, much, Ma. Much respect, ladies. We respect I, the ladies. Oh, my gosh. We respect the ladies. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm... Couldn't yeah. do it. I'd be crying, like, crying like a wuss. Terrible. It's like her, <laughs> her, her second or third kid. It wasn't even the first. Oh, my gosh. Um, so treatment. So the treatment of choice used to be methyl dopa. It's the one you would hear about. Um, labetalol is increasingly used more often, mainly because of fewer side effects. Um, methyl dopa still works fine, um, but um, it's you know got a little more side effects than, than um, labetalol. Nifedipine is um, a long-acting agent, and it's considered one of the first-line agents you could consider. Um, thiazides, not quite first-line, but generally safe at lower doses um, if they're started prior to conception for essential hypertension. Um, so yeah, that, there's some caveats to that. But like I said, ACE, ARBs, direct renin inhibitors, aliskirin, contraindicated, major um, teratogenic potential, fetal toxicity, death, take them off before they get pregnant or if they're considering becoming pregnant. Yeah. That's a good point, too. If you have a patient that is actively becoming pregnant, switch them ahead of time. Yeah. Or with any of the other meds if you can. Yep. Good call. So, um, again, just kind of talking through some of the antibiotics, um, specifically with UTI infections. Um, so, with a UTI, nitrofurantoin, we've, we've all kind of seen that being used as one of the first-line options for, you know, uncomplicated acute uh, cystitis. And um, that's one that uh, is still considered to be a first-line option. Um in pregnancy. However, if the patient has a um, documented glucose uh, 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, um, there is like a theoretical risk for um, the the neonate developing hemolytic anemia. And so um, after the 37 weeks gestation period, we probably do want to avoid nitrofurantoin in patients that have that uh, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. Um, beta-lactams can be used, so like penicillins and cephalosporins. Um, however, just I mean, they're no longer recommended in just you know non-pregnant patients with uh, UTIs. Um, they are considered to be safe in this patient population um, as far as pregnancy goes. However, the cure rate of UTIs, there's a lot of resistance now um, you know, with beta-lactamases and, and especially on gram-negative bugs. So um, not the most effective, and that you may want to get a kind of proof of cure um, if you do use one of those. And then sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, um, possibility of an, uh, be, being able to use that. Um, trimethoprim is a folate antagonist, though, and, and is you know, going to be pretty much contraindicated during the first trimester. Um, and then we also would want to avoid Bactrim in the uh, sort of the last weeks of gestation. But in the middle, we could potentially use it if we had to. Uh, but Nitrofurantoin is probably a better option. Yep. And on the same vein as the UTIs, there's uh, vaginal fungal infections, candidiasis infections. Um, so myconazole, clotrimazole, topical cream, suppositories, those are safe. Those are preferred. The big thing to remember is avoid oral fluconazole, oral diflucan, the, which is usually the treatment stable, right? Um, so there was a 2016 JAMA study that showed an increased risk of spontaneous abortion with the use of oral fluconazole. So ACOG now says to avoid that. Um, there was a 2020 study back in June looking at the risk of malformations um, in U.S. databases and a couple million pregnancies um, who reported um, oral fluconazole use in the first trimester. Um, and uh, almost 40,000 of them were associated with a 30% increase in risk of musculoskeletal malformations at, risk, at uh, doses lower than 450 milligrams. So avoid diflucan in pregnancy. 
So cough and cold type symptoms, um, you know, we can use the, our first generation um, antihistamines are uh, potential. So chlorpheniramine, um, diphenhydramine, um, maybe doxalamine if you're, you know, in higher doses if we're taking that for uh, nausea as well. But um, loratadine and cetirizine, um, definitely safe during second, third trimesters and probably just as safe in first. She was taking um, Claritin the whole time and I'm like, Did, was she taking it in the first? I can't remember, but... Um Maybe it was after the I've first. I've definitely seen first generation or first trimester use of those as well. I think yeah. it's just more labeling. But if it's a alert, like an allergic or nitus, you know, situation, not just like you know some cough and cold symptoms, um, then uh, a nasal steroid being kind of first line option there. Um, the two that have the most data in pregnancy is going to be our budesonide and our um, beclomethazone, uh, Qnasal. I believe is the brand name of that one, and uh, but budesonide is the one that's going to be probably the cheaper option, and that's available over the counter and all that good stuff. So um, that's the one that has very much uh, the amount of supporting data that we like, versus the other ones just don't haven't been studied as much. Um, pain management, uh, acetaminophen is usually the gold standard for pain management, um, but uh, there is like a an FDA um, kind of investigation that uh, is looking at a. a loose but possible link between acetaminophen use in pregnancy and then uh, ADHD and uh, autism in children. Um, I have to look and see if there's been any updates to that, if they're still actually going after that. It seems like it'd be a hard thing to truly Yeah, it show seems like a hard one. That causation. got me a little bit nervous because I definitely was not aware of that and she definitely took some Tylenol. But um, yeah, it seems like that there would be that would be a hard link to make. Yeah. Hard link to make. Well, if there's any kind of ADHD component uh, to this genetic component, which I'm pretty sure there is. My kids are screwed <laughs> so um but yeah so that, that's something just to kind of keep in, in mind and maybe do some research on your own just see what get your own opinion on asthma um if we have to use like kind of maintenance therapy then uh, again budesonide being the steroid that's um, whether it's in, inhaled or the intranasal um, budesonide has a lot of the data surrounding it so if, if we're using a, a steroid to kind of control symptoms then um, budesonide probably be a good option to go with so um, with VTEs, so venous thromboembolisms, uh, mechanical valves, Mike kind of mentioned anticoagulation options before when he was talking about the um, molecular weights, but low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin would be options. The um, DOACs don't really have enough data to be classified as safe. So um, yeah, the Lovenox or the heparin is definitely what I've seen used more often. Um, also you can have thyroid issues. So patients with hypothyroidism, you can use the levothyroxine. Um, it may require dose adjustments, maybe an increase of 30 to 50% during pregnancy. Um, and, um, if hypothyroidism is, uh, hypothyroidism is not treated, it can increase uh, miscarriage risk. So you would want to make sure you treat that and uh, screen for that as well. There's also hyperthyroidism. Um, mild cases won't need treatment. Um, if possible, normalize the mother's thyroid function before pregnancy. If you have to treat it, like if they have a Graves' disease type situation, um, propylthiouracil would be the preferred drug in the first trimester, and then methimazole would be the preferred drug in the second and third trimesters. Uh, let's see. So we talked a little bit uh, about lactation early on, just mentioning that they, those the, that topic is also addressed in the uh, kind of detailed description of the effects of the, the drug. But, um, you know, things that uh, properties of the drug that can kind of um, 
you know, increase the excretion into breast milk, you know, drugs that are non-ionized, drugs that, again, have small molecular weights, um, their higher volume of distribution, uh, higher lipid-soluble uh, medications, those are all going to have uh, a little bit better, um, you know, passage into the breast milk, uh, but a lot of other medications do have low excretion and, and are safe to use while breastfeeding. Um, but some, you know, things like uh, codeine tramadol, um, those are some classic examples. And there's been case reports even with codeine where um, a patient was taking codeine, breastfed the infant, and then it didn't realize the, the infant was a 2D6 ultra rapid metabolizer. And that codeine was converted much quicker um, than anticipated to morphine and caused respiratory uh, depression and death. Um, and so we probably just, you know, avoid those altogether um, and uh, fit in a patient who's breastfeeding. But um, we definitely, if, if anything, tramadol is probably a little bit safer than codeine. And we definitely want to use the smallest dose possible. Yeah, for sure. There are some special situations in lactation. Uh, if a patient is infected with HIV, um, breastfeeding is not recommended for women who um, have documented HIV infections. Um, and then some medications to avoid during breastfeeding. Interestingly, generally things have trouble, which we said before, have trouble um, moving to the breast milk and being dangerous versus crossing the placenta. It seems more often they cross the placenta. Um, but avoid amphetamines, lamictal, lithium, statins still. So after breastfeeding, can you restart the statin? And metronidazole, avoid if possible. If you need to use it, then the milk should be pumped and dumped. Uh, for 12 to 24 hours after a, a dose, after a single dose. Um, but kind of finishing up, there are some good resources. Pretty much anytime you're asked a question about one of these, I just consult it just in case. Uh, but there's the Briggs Drugs in Pregnancy and Lactation. Um, there's the Lact Med app. That's L-A-C-T-M-E-D. Um, get it on your phone. It's free. That's the one I use pretty much anytime I have a lactation question. I just pull it up. And um, it's kind of got those um, pregnant, those lactation summaries that you would see on Lexicomp. Also, American Academy of Pediatrics and also uh, ACOG, which we've been referencing, all good resources when you're asked a pregnancy or lactation question. Absolutely. Anything else? We got to go over? Do you think it's a good summary call? That's all I got, man. I think we, I didn't hear any thunder or anything. Yeah, I can't believe it. So I think we did it. Let's not jinx ourselves. Let's wrap this up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that was helpful. Uh, if you have any you know, comments, questions, or things you want to add or want us to add, um, feel free to send us an email. Um, we've actually been getting quite a bit of emails lately. So, Good email. Yeah. Um, and I apologize if it's taking us longer to uh, you know, get back in touch with you. Um, I promise it's not intentional, but we also have other full-time jobs and other things going on and uh so it's uh we need some secretaries or something <laughs> so we need some better interns um but uh yeah i promise it's not we're trying to ignore you we, we do read all the emails eventually and uh, we will get back to you as quick as we can um but uh the emails will be in the show notes or you can reach us on any of the social media platforms um definitely love to hear from you um check out the patreon account so uh, it's www.patreon.com slash core consult rx um there's actual like more you know, when you think of lecture formats, it's a more boring lecture type formats, but that's your jam. Um, we also have the downloadable PowerPoint slides associated with the lecture. So there's probably thousands of slides on there at this point. And you can do uh, monthly or a thing for all year. And they, I try to do at least one to two uploads a week. Um, sometimes it's not quite that frequent, but the lectures are anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half. So check that out. And then um, again, make sure you uh, 
check out the Pearls app, um, see what you think. And if you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. Um, you know, he said that was cool, cool to tell you. But um, go to www.pearlspyrls.com slash core console rx. Um, sign up with your email and that gets you access to the free account as well as the uh, diabetes charts. And then there's going to be even more uh, cool, exclusive core console fan charts coming very soon on uh, pearls but um we'll give you more information about that later and uh yeah thank you guys so much for listening and we'll catch you next time thanks